Hey guys, thanks for joining us today. One of the things that energizes our teams the most is being able to hear stories of lives that are impacted by this ministry. We would love for you to share your story with us by emailing it to stories at newcommunity.co or maybe your next step to getting connected to what God is doing in this ministry is partnering with us financially. You can do that online at www.newcommunity.co or through the PushPay app and find the giving option that works best for you. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. It's good to see each and every one of you here. And if you are our guest, once again, we want to welcome you. If you're here at NCC for the first time or if you're watching online for the first time, thank you so much for joining with us. My name is Aaron, and I am the lead pastor here at NCC. And we're excited that you're with us. We are a church that's passionate about making people and places new. That's our heart. And our prayer is that you would experience that while you're here with us at NCC, that you would see that change in your own life and see how God is using us as a church to make the area around us new and that God is using us to bring change and transformation here in our own community. And you've picked a great Sunday to come on because we are kicking off this brand new series called The End is Near. And we've been walking through the Bible together. We started last September in the book of Genesis, and we've been moving from book to book and hitting um, different stories, highlighting different stories. And so now we're going to spend the last few weeks of kind of this campaign of Made for More looking at the book of Revelation. And if you've ever wondered how this thing is going to end, you're not alone. Okay, you're not by yourself. All of us have those questions of how the world will end, what's going to happen. And so many times we're left up to Hollywood's version. You know, something we've seen on movies, something we've seen on the television, maybe something we've heard someone else say that we really didn't understand. Um, and so we're left up to that. But we want to look at what God's word says. And sometimes this can be, you know, misunderstood or confusing. And so we want to bring clarity because if you were to stop people um, just out on the street and you were to ask them how this thing is going to end, you would get a lot of different answers just like this. So there are a lot of different thoughts when it comes to the end of the world. But we want to, once again, we want to open up Scripture and look at what God's Word says and um, take away some of the confusion and look what it is that God is speaking to us. And so as we approach this series, I want to lay a foundation and I want to encourage you to take notes. You're not going to want to miss any of these weeks, but this morning there's a card in front of you that says sermon notes. You can take that out. Take out your smartphone, take notes on there, because some of this I believe you're going to want to look back at and allow God to continue to speak to you through this message. So the first thing that I want us to look at as we think about this series, this is for everyone, okay? This book of the Bible called Revelation, it is for everyone. 
And a lot of times, you know, you may have heard, well, I tried to read it. It just seemed so confusing or I didn't know. I was afraid I was going to misunderstand it. All of God's word from cover to cover, Genesis to the end of Revelation to the last word, it's God's story. It's his plan of salvation. It's how God is rescuing us. This is the story of a God who wants to pursue us, who is interested in us and is in love with us. And that's what Revelation is. It's a part of that story. So this is not a book just for the spiritual elite. Like you're in church long enough and finally you get to cover Revelation, okay? This is not a a book just for the academic elite, people that understand a lot or know a lot. And maybe if you study enough, you can figure this out. And it is not a book um, for people that understand prophecy and like, okay, I kind of understand futuristic things and I've got that. So now I can read the book. It's for everyone. When Jesus arrived here on the earth, that's what the angel said. That's what they talked about. They said, hey, this is good news. It's the gospels. That's what gospel means is simply good news. This is good news for everyone. And although it may not seem like it, I promise if you stay with us for these four weeks, you're going to see that how this story is good news to everyone who encounters it. And that's what this book is about. Even how the world ends is going to be good news. The second thing is how we're going to approach this book. Okay. So there's a few different ways that people use whenever they're approaching the book of Revelation. The first, and and you may have heard people talk about it like this, is that it's just a historical book. So some people believe that the author, as he's writing this, is just recording history. And he's using some creative language. He's using some um, kind of creative imagery. But he's just conveying what's taking place in the time that he lived And then that's it. It really doesn't have any future implication. It's a historical viewpoint of the book of Revelation. Another way that people approach and understand the book of Revelation, it's an idealist kind of view. And what they're saying is is the author's just conveying kind of these big, grand ideas, good versus evil, righteousness versus sin, right? A lion versus a a dragon, or I'm sorry, a lamb versus a dragon. Kind of this imagery, that's what God is doing. And it really doesn't apply to the physical world around us or to time as we know it. It's just kind of these creative ideas, and that's what the author is writing about. It's this idealistic kind of view. The other way that you can approach it um, is a futurist view. And what that says is it says the book of Revelation is obviously a real book written by a real person. It was at a real point in history. It was written to um, a real audience. And although it conveys ideas of what was going on in the world around it, we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks, it not only applies to them, but it also speaks to what is to come, to how this is all going to play out, to what's going to end. As you read Revelation, at the very beginning, Jesus says this to the author as he's having a vision of Jesus. He says, I want you to write down what you have seen, what is happening now, and what is to come. So you got that? What what you have seen, what is happening now, and what is to come. And so because of that, because of that understanding, that's how we're going to approach the book of Revelation, that it's speaking to what's going on at the time that this book was written, but it also has future implications, and it's prophetic in nature to what God is speaking um, for what he wants to happen in the church. I also want to let you know this, as we approach this book every week, we're not just going to talk about something that's going to happen out there at the end. We're going to talk about what this means for us this week and how God wants to take his word and what he's saying and and even things that are going to happen. And it's going to matter to you when you show up on Monday at work. 
It's going to matter to you in the way that you interact with your kids and with friendships and relationships that you have because that's how God's work That's how God's word does it. It always speaks to us right where we're at. And so it's not just going to be some futuristic, idealistic thing out there. It's also going to speak to right where we're at. And so let's jump into this book. Let's look at this. The book of Revelation, it's the last book in the Bible. And it's written by this guy named John. And John, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, is one of the 12 disciples. He's one of the 12 guys that followed Jesus around while Jesus was here on this earth, okay? And this is who's writing it. John wrote um, the Gospel of John. And so if you've ever read that, the story of Jesus called the Gospel of John, that's written from this same guy. First, second, and third John, right before the book of Revelation, that's written from the same author. And then this book of Revelation. And when he writes this, he's on this island right here. Okay, It's an island known as Patmos. So let me write that up there for those of you taking notes. P-A-T-M-O-S. And it's written in 90 A.D., And this is important to know because it conveys part of what's going on in this book. He's writing from this island and he's exiled there, okay? So the Roman um, Empire is kind of in power at this point. And if you were a criminal, they didn't build prisons all the time. They just stuck you on this island. They figured you guys would kill each other out or something would happen. You're not going to escape. You're on an island. You don't have a boat, so you can't get off. This is where John is at when he writes this. It's also 60 years after Jesus has died, been resurrected, has been here on the earth, and ascended back into heaven. So this is kind of the last thing that God is writing in the Bible, in in his holy word, to convey to the church about how all of this is going to end and what's going to be taking place. So this is about 60 years. The church has grown. The church has been spreading. And that's important to know as we approach the book. And so John's praying. He's just in his morning prayer routine like he always does. And he's one morning as he's praying, he has this vision of Jesus. And John has seen Jesus. He walked with them for three years. He went everywhere with Jesus, heard everything that he said, but he has not seen Jesus like this. And in this morning when he's praying, he has this vision of Jesus. And he said, when I saw him, I fell down like a dead man. I couldn't move. I couldn't get around. Like I was just frozen to the ground like I had died because of the glory and the splendor. He saw the resurrected Christ in all of his power and in all of his glory. And he said, I have this vision of Jesus. Jesus was speaking to me and challenging me to write down what it was that he was going to convey to me and to give this to the church. And so he has these pictures. He has this picture of Jesus walking among these seven stars, of walking in these seven lampstands, of this scroll that he's giving, the word of God coming forth. And he starts all of this by writing seven letters. That's how Revelation starts. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. There are seven letters that Jesus wants to give to the church. Because the church has been going on for 60 years now. And he's saying, hey, there's some things you're doing well. There's some things you need to be careful of. 60 years has passed since I've been here on earth with you. And there's some things that I need to say to you um, as I begin to tell you about what's going to take place in the future. And so he starts with seven letters. Now, John is right here on this island. I realize you guys in the back may not be able to see it, but there is a tiny speck there. And that's where John is. That's the Isle of Patmos. And all of these cities are actually spread out in Asia Minor there. There's seven of them. These are influential cities. And we're going to look at the first letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus. So let me write that up there. That is supposed to be an E. And then the last one to the church in Laodicea. So the first and the last letter that he writes. I wish we could go through each of these letters because they're such amazing stuff, but we're just going to hit the first one and the last one, and you can go this week and read through those other five letters where Jesus is writing 
to the church there. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2. This is where he starts to talk about the letters that Jesus is giving as John's having this vision. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We've got you covered. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you, maybe one or two seats over, but you can take it out and turn to page 595 in that Bible. And I want to encourage you to do that, to open it up and to follow along with us as we look at the words that Jesus is saying to the church here. And once again, he starts with the church in Ephesus. This is the first letter he writes, Revelations chapter 2, verse 1. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the one who conquers I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in, par is in the paradise of God. So Jesus is writing this letter. All of these letters follow this same pattern. Jesus starts by conveying who he is. He's writing to the church and he's reminding them, it's been 60 years. This is 90 AD, the mid-90s mid there. It's, it's been 60 years, but I don't want you to forget who I am. And so he starts by writing to the church, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. I'm the one who holds those stars in my hand. That was the church leadership. And the lampstands that you're seeing here are symbols of these seven churches. And what is he reminding them of? Church, I'm walking with you. See, it's been a while now, and you may think that I've forgotten about you. It's been over 60 years, and you may think that I've left you, that I've gone into heaven, and now I've forgotten about you. But I want you to know I'm with you every single step of the way. Church, I'm walking among you whenever you're facing persecution, whenever Jewish leaders are coming against you, whenever the Roman Empire is exiling you and imprisoning you. I'm right there with you. He's reminding us, church, when you go into work on Monday, Jesus is there with you. He's the one who walks with you. Students, when you go into that classroom for the first time this year. Jesus is the one who walks with you. He said, I am the one who walks with my church. I've not left you or I've not abandoned you. That's who I am. I walk with my people. And so that's where he starts at. He reminds them who he is. The second thing that he does in these letters is he tells them what they are doing good. He writes to the church in Ephesus, you're doing this well. I look at you and you're enduring. You continue to go. It's been a while now. The church has been established, but you've not forgotten how to test what is good and evil. And you've done this well. Whenever someone comes in your midst, you open up my word and you find out is what they're saying real? Are they a heretic? Are they teaching what's right? You open up my word and you've tested those that are false teachers and you've thrown them out. You understand my word. This is so good because we just finished this series called To Whom It May Concern, and we walked through these epistles, and you may remember the letter to the church in Ephesus like 30 years before this, and Paul, this other writer, he's telling the church, hey, you've got to grow up, you've got to mature, 
You've got to get sound doctrine. Don't be tossed kind of to and fro like a wave just tossing you around. Understand, study scripture, understand the truth. You've got to grow up into maturity. And this is Jesus writing 30 years later. Church, you're doing that. You've tested sound doctrine. You understand. This is a church that understood scripture is going to shape my life. They were opening up God's word and applying it to their life. Jesus said, you're doing this well. And then the third thing that he does with all of these churches is he said, hey, here's a warning. Here's a challenge. Here's something you better be careful of. Here's something, here's an area that you're slipping in. After time has passed, this may be an area that you've forgotten. And so I want to warn you of that. And what does he say to the church of Ephesus? But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Said you've left love and you need to return to it. He's writing to this church and he said, you've walked away from the love you had at first. Now, I grew up in church and I heard pastors talking about this and I always heard them talking about, well, this church, they had walked away from God, but that's not what Jesus says. He didn't say you left me. He said, you left love. You've left love and I need you to return to it. You've forgotten, you've fallen. Do what you did at first. What was the early church known for? They were known for their love. That's what Jesus said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? By your love one for another. By how well you love one another. That's how people are gonna know that you're the church. And Ephesus had started to forget this. See, what it was is they had the truth of the gospel. They understood scripture. They knew God's word. They understood those things, but they had forgotten the heart of the gospel, how to love other people well. What, what did the early church do? They saw each other's need and they met that. They met one another's needs. And so if you had a need, something had come up, you, you were having a financial issue and I had an extra house, I had an extra land, I had an extra car, I would sell that and give it to you and say, hey, I wanna help meet that need. That's what the church was doing in the book of Acts. And you get 50 years later and what happens? You've forgotten that church. You've stopped opening up your home and breaking bread together. You've stopped fellowshipping with one another and hanging out together. You've left love, you've abandoned that. You used to know how to love well and now you've walked away from that and you need to return to it. See, Jesus is cautioning this church, hey, you're gonna miss it. You're gonna miss out if you don't follow what it is that you did at first, if you don't return to that, they had lost the heart of the gospel. And the sad truth is, as you study church history, Ephesus started off as one of the most influential Christian cities in the world at that time. Like you read authors, Christian authors from the early hundreds and 200s AD, and where are they writing from? They're writing from the city of Ephesus. Early church councils where leaders from all over the world would get together and talk about the church and what God was saying and what God was doing, they were meeting in cities like Ephesus. They met in Ephesus. That's where they were at, right? Archaeologists, as they're digging, they, they're exploring and all of this. As they dig in Ephesus, they find all of these Christian relics, all of these things that show how alive the church was, believers meeting in one another's homes and the influence that Christianity had in the city of Ephesus. But if you go there today, that's all it is, is relics. That's all it is. It's just history now. Because there is not a church in the city of Ephesus that is really reaching out and loving their community well nowadays. What did Jesus say? If you don't do this, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. I'm going to come and take that church away. Because I don't want people to think that church is all about knowledge and not about love. 
And that's what he says is you've left love. You've abandoned that. It's time you start to learn to love well. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bowl or put it under a basket. No, they put it on a lampstand and they set it in the middle of the room and it gives light to everyone. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus saying? Church, you better know how to love well. You better know how to love well. If you want to be the church, if you want to be present where you're at, you have to learn to love well. If we don't do that, we're going to end up like Ephesus, just a relic, just something in in the pages of history where we've missed out on what it truly means to be the church. That's what Jesus is cautioning them. I have this against you. You understand the truth of the gospel. You've missed the heart of the gospel. And how many times, how many people we come into church and at first we're on fire. We love people. We want to share this with everyone. And then after a little bit, we forget what it's like for our lives to be broken, for our lives to be jacked up. And we just settle into this routine of knowing what God has done for us and not sharing it with anyone else. And Jesus is saying, you better love well. You've abandoned that love that you first had. It's time to return to it. So that's what I'm challenging you with this this morning, church, is you've got to repent if you're in that place. If you're in that same place that the city of Ephesus and the church of Ephesus was in, you've got to repent. It's being honest. It's a heart issue. You can make yourself do stuff for a certain amount of time, but if you really want to change, it starts in the heart of saying, God, I don't know if I love like you're loving, and I want to. For that kid in my classroom that's hurting and that I know is going through some family issues, God, help me to love them well. For that family member that annoys me, that every time I talk to him, it seems like, God, help me to love well. To that person that I see in need in my workplace, on the side of the road, around me, God, help me to love well. See, we've got to repent and say, God, I'm not doing this, but I want your heart, God. I want your kind of love to flow through me, God. I want to make a difference to those around me. And then what does he say? Do what you did before. After you repent, do what you did before. Begin to live this thing out. I love these kinds of stories. Um, Some of you guys may know them. Heath and Lauren Hola and Brian Minyard, who come to the first service, they've been sharing with me about how they've been going into prison and hanging out with inmates and just sharing their story of how God has changed them and how God has redeemed them and delivered them. And they said, man, we just want to impact others that are imprisoned right now that maybe the freedom that we found in Christ that they could find even while they're in that jail cell. See, it's moments like yesterday where our church goes out and we serve with MISD, we serve with the back to school fair. Those of you that went out, that we're loving, we're walking with families, we're giving, we're resourcing them along with the school district. Why? Because we want them to see the love of Christ through our life. We don't wanna abandon love, church. We don't wanna have the knowledge of the gospel and the truth of the gospel, and we miss out on the heart of the gospel. That's what Jesus is writing to Ephesus. Don't walk away from the love that you had when this thing first started. You've got to live this out. Do what you did at first. Live the way that you lived at first to be that example to the people around you. He ends this letter with such a powerful reminder of what happens, of what is promised whenever we follow this. And it says this, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. 
See, Ephesus housed one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It housed the temple to the goddess Diana. It was well-known everywhere in the world. And in the middle of that temple was one of the most beautiful, well-kept gardens of their time. And in the center of that garden, there was the tree of freedom. And everyone would have known about the tree of freedom. It was on the back of coins. Caesar's face was on the front, but almost all of the ancient coins had the tree of freedom. And it was said, if you had committed some wrong, if you had done something and and you were a criminal and you were being chased, if you could get to the tree of freedom before you were captured, you'd be pardoned. There'd be no punishment. And Jesus ends by looking at the church and saying, hey, if you overcome to those who don't give up, to those who continue to love, to those who continue to walk with me, to those who continue to show that example, I'll give the right to eat of the tree of life. Not just something here on the earth, not just a momentary freedom, but everlasting life, the tree of life, eternal freedom inside of you. Don't give up, church. Keep on going. Don't throw in the towel, but conquer and overcome because you're going to get a reward. It's paradise. It's being with God in heaven. That's what Jesus is writing the church He goes on to write the church in Laodicea. If you still have your Bibles open, Revelations chapter 3, starting at verse 14. This is what he says. That was the first letter to Ephesus. This is the last letter to the church in Laodicea. And this is what he says to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Write the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich and I've prospered and I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. What does Jesus write to the church in Laodicea? There's been six letters before this. This is the only time that Jesus doesn't follow that pattern. He starts by telling them, hey, church, this is who I am. I'm the God of creation. I'm the faithful one. But he has nothing to applaud for them. He has nothing to say, hey, church, you're doing really well in this area. He simply has a correction, a challenge. Church, you're missing it. And what does he say? You're lukewarm. You have this apathetic Christianity going on. And it tastes disgusting. And this is what he says. If you are apathetic, God is going to blow chunks. I just have no other way to say it, church. He's going to vomit you. I want, to get, I want you to get that picture. He's going to spew you out of his mouth. That's what he says. Is the kind of Christianity that you're living out in Laodicea. He's like, it's disgusting. It tastes disgusting to me. And I don't want any part of it. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And why? What's going on? Well, you have to know what's taking place here in the city of Laodicea. Because these cities are situated in different areas, Laodicea is right here in the middle. That's where that city was. 
And in order to trade, to do anything, businesses, all of the roads, they went through this one city. And so wealth had accumulated. It had the largest banking system in the then known world, Laodicea. So all of the gold, all of the gold coins were coming through that city. They were extremely wealthy. And because of that wealth, they were advancing in knowledge. There were schools, universities that were growing up. The top medical schools in the world at that point were in Laodicea. People were traveling from what is now northern Europe all the way from the tip of Africa into this one city to study. And what was their specialization? It was ophthalmology. And you may not know what that means. I didn't know what it means. But they believed that they had this special ointment that they could put on people's eyes in these medical procedures. And if you had trouble seeing, that they could restore your sight. That's what was going on there. Medical advancements that almost no other city had, they had in this city. But not only that, because of the wealth, because of this, there were farmers and, and they were working together and they had um, breeded this type of sheep that could produce this really black wool. Like they didn't have dyes like you and I have where we can wear black shirts. And so the only way to do that was through this wool. And they had breeded the sheep in such a way that they had the blackest wool of anyone there in the world. And so Laodicea, it was the fashion industry of the world. Like New York City had nothing on this, right? It wasn't LA, it was Laodicea at this point. And, and all of the fashion industry, the clothing, the garments, black garments meant that you had wool from Laodicea and that you were kind of at the top, you were wealthy, you had it all together. But there was a problem, the city was growing, it had wealth, it had all of these things, and they had a water issue. See, there was just this dried up river known as the Lysus River that was running through the city and in the summer it was dried up. And even in the winter and at other times it wasn't clean drinking water. And so they piped in water five miles away from the city of Hierapolis, five miles north of this city. And Hierapolis, it still is, it's known for its hot springs. Like it's where you go to the spa or the resort, like you relax naturally out of the ground. The water is just hot. It's really hot, and so it's refreshing and rejuvenating for your skin. There's all of these natural minerals, but the problem is if you try to drink it, the minerals are too much for your body to handle, and what will happen? You'll blow chunks. You're going to vomit. And so they're trying to get this water, but it doesn't work. Even when they get it to the city, no one can drink it. And so they build another pipeline 11 miles away from the city in the south, Colossae, Colossi sat at the bottom of Mount Cadmus, and it was this beautiful river that flowed down. When the snow would melt, it would come down into the city. And so Laodicea said, well, we'll pipe from there. But the problem was, after you pipe that ice-cold, refreshing water over 11 miles in the hot sun, it got lukewarm. And people in the city, they would try to drink it, but it just it wasn't refreshing. It was disgusting. And Jesus said, that's what it tastes like. That's what your kind of Christianity tastes like. You're apathetic. And what the church was doing is they said, God, we don't really need you. We've got this all covered. Like I know when we started, God, we were just a bunch of poor people, but now we're established and we have wealth, God, and we don't really need you to provide for us. We've got our own money. And I know we used to come to you and we used to pray when we were sick, but we've got the top medical institutes in all of the world. Jesus, we've got this handled. We don't really need you in our life. You're kind of just this side thing over here. Hey, Jesus, we've got the best designer clothes. Like, we're looking good on the outside. We've got all of this covered. And what does Jesus say? You don't really see what's going on. He said, you think you've got all of this money, but spiritually, you're bankrupt. There's an emptiness on the inside of you. And you need to come to me to buy what is real gold. Gold that's been refined by fire. Gold that's pure. 
He said, you think you can see, you've got all of this medical advancement, you're helping people to see, but spiritually you're blind. You don't see what the enemy is doing. You don't even understand what I'm about to write you, what the enemy is going to try to do, because spiritually you're blind. You think you've got it all figured out. You've become apathetic, and it's disgusting me. He said, you think you're clothed in the finest clothes that this world has to offer, but spiritually you're naked. And you need to be clothed in a white garment in righteousness that comes from me. See, Laodicea, they had said, God, we've got this figured out. And you're kind of over here on the side. And if we need something, we'll come to you. But we're kind of okay where we're at. And God looks at the church and he says, you disgust me. And the taste of your Christianity, it makes me want to vomit. I don't want any part of that. And as I read this church, I thought, We're in a very dangerous spot to become like this. Because in our nation, we have wealth. In the church in America, we have a lot of things, and it can become very easy both in our personal lives and in the church as a whole to think, God, we're okay. We can take care of ourselves. God, we've got a good job. We've done this on our own, Lord. We don't really need your provision. We can get to the place where we're no longer praying and relying on him for the things that we need in our life. We can think, God, we've got this covered. We've got a righteousness of our own, Lord. We look good on the outside. We've got it all figured out when God is looking at us and he's saying, but really you're bankrupt and you're naked and you need me in your life. And so what does he tell the church to do? He says, listen to my correction. I'm doing this because I love you, church. Not because I want to see your destruction, but because I know I have something better for you than the way that you're living right now. And so when God, when he disciplines the church, when he speaks this word, it's because he loves us. He wants something better. And whenever we find ourselves in this apathetic state, we need to listen to the voice of God and his correction that he's bringing. Why? Because he's speaking that because he loves us. He wants something better for us. What's the second thing that he tells the church that we need to listen to? In this situation, he says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And I want to come in. I want to get to know you. I want to have this relationship with you. That's who I am. If you'll just open the door and listen to my voice. And all growing up, I'd heard heard preachers and pastors talk about this. And they said, yes, this is for the person out there that doesn't have a relationship with God. No, he's writing the church. This isn't just for the sinner. This isn't for the person that's distant away from God. This is for the church. This is for his people that have become apathetic. And he's saying, I don't want my relationship to just be on a Sunday morning for one hour. I don't even want just the first five minutes of your day. Would you open up the door of your heart and actually invite me in? Would you start compartmentalizing your life into these different areas and saying, God, will you go here? And I've got everything else covered. And he's saying, will you just open up the door of your heart and invite me in because I want a relationship with you. I want to get to know you and I want you to get to know me. That's my desire. I want to be in relationship with you. He's saying, church, don't have this kind of apathetic Christianity where God says, man, it doesn't taste good, it disgusts me, and I just want to throw it up, I want to spit it out of my mouth. But that kind of Christianity that says, God, we open up our hearts to you, our lives, everything that we are, God, for all that you want. 
See, and he had to speak this to the church because everything else that he's going to say over the next few weeks, it comes, it starts with us understanding our relationship with God, that there's this God who pursues us, there's this God who loves us, there's this God who wants to be close to us, and that's how he starts the book. Before you see anything else that's going to happen, you need to know that, that this is the God who wants to be near you, who has done everything, who's given his life. Why? Just so he could be back in a right relationship with us because our sin had separated us from him.